are we doing, guys? It is Fit Food Radio, episode number 85, with me good self, Matty Boy Whitmore, and of course, Keris Marsden. <laughs> Don't know what to say. Well, hello's a good place to start. Hello, sorry. You know? Hello. You, you always look so shocked. I know. Do you know what? As soon as you press record, I'm already thinking about something else. That's why. Something related to the podcast. Yeah, though, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So I just, I'm like, oh, not, I, I need to remember what, to... Yeah. <laughs> what fancy for dinner yeah. tonight? <laughs> no, I'm thinking about something I need to remember to say. It suddenly bring me back in the room. I'm like, boom. And I, don't, I have no idea what Keris, to say. doing podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. Anyway. <laughs> right, guys. Hope everyone is well, wherever you are and whatever you're doing whilst you are listening to this podcast. And um, this week, we are going to talk about something that's incredibly important. We talk about it a hell of a lot anyway, uh, but it, it you know can never have too much attention, if you will. And that's uh, the gut, or as Kerry says, the gut. Um, <laughs> so... Keris, why don't you kick things off? Because, you know, digestive health and gut health is something that we've spoken about for a long, long time, something that you're, you've always been very, very passionate about. Um, and I suppose of late, you could not, say... I'm not passionate about... I'm so passionate about the gut. <laughs> yeah. But what do you mean? Yeah, maybe that's the wrong word. But you're, you know, you, you, you realise its importance. Yeah, definitely. Kind of having good gut health. And I think lately it seems that it's kind of getting spoken about a little bit more in, in mainstream media. Which you know, is it's, great, isn't which it? Which is yeah. awesome. You know, like even like mm. magazines and, you know, like a couple of the TV shows with the doctors and whatnot have, have been talking about it, which is kind of like, you know, exactly what you want, really, for anything to kind of gain, gain a little bit of traction. Well, yeah, it just makes, I mean, some of the things I talk about with clients or even when we go and do presentations some people's faces you can kind of tell they're like are you serious you know like I've never heard any of this information before like are you pulling my leg type thing because um and, and it's funny because I'm so kind of involved in it all and someone emails me and goes oh I need to talk to you about toilet habits but I'm so embarrassed or even on a health questionnaire on a client session they're almost loath to tell me about the most vital part, really, in, in my opinion, one of the most vital systems in the body and how it's operating. You know, it's very embarrassing in a way, isn't it, mm. if you think about it? Whereas I'm so used to it, I'm like, come on, tell me, what's going on down there? You know, <laughs> Are you having a look at, you know, in the loo, I mean. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's great to hear it being mentioned so people are less embarrassed to talk about it and also to kind of develop an awareness because when you have digestive issues... Um, you tend to go to a GP and often you're you're offered you know very few options really but it tends to be they'll check you for things like celiacs they'll check if you have inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or colitis and then if they can't find anything like those they'll tend to sort of send you away with a diagnosis of IBS irritable bowel syndrome and yeah. I've had people come to me and say I've got diagnosed with IBS and uh, the first thing I explain is it's not really a diagnosis it's basically they don't really know yeah you know so uh, my job is to kind of dig a bit deeper and go well what is going on with your bowel why doesn't you know why is it irritated essentially <laughs> what's going on so I thought I'd talk through some common things that it could be if you suffer from any kind of symptoms of or any digestive issues really and even if you have um, something like celiac Crohn's or colitis it will often lead into another condition because one aspect of the digestive system maybe isn't functioning as it should might be damaged might be inflamed so then we get like a knock-on effect um, or it could be that they were they're all linked by you know a single cause be it like a, an incident of food poisoning can have actually a really kind of long-term impact on the gut so again we've talked before about in a consultation I'll often ask clients about when they traveled and maybe got sick and you call it that kind of I've never been well since moment yeah or taking a medication would have a similar impact taking antibiotics for example so um I thought today and I should actually tell our listeners that we have attempted this podcast once <laughs> already and uh, my, my idea was to kind of go through the digestive system how it works and then some of the problems and about 40 minutes in I looked at Matt and, and had, I was asleep yeah basically his <laughs> eyes were closed I was, I was sleeping standing up <laughs> yeah, so I thought okay that, that might be a little bit too heavy so why we said not that it wasn't good info <laughs> what, you're just I, being really polite now no no it's like I said to you like it was it was good info but I think it's sometimes it's not your passion um, it's not that passionate about I'm poop as passionate about the guys you guys <laughs> yeah. um but no I think uh, I think it was a combination of things to be fair like to give you some credit because obviously you know you know your, your brain fascinates me uh, but I think sometimes you uh waffle you, well, no, probably just not, let's use a different word yeah. <laughs> do, do you know we've been uh, to events and 
I've spoken and people have taken pictures and put them on Facebook and there was one, I always remember this vividly, it was female hormones to be fair, <laughs> but Matt is in the background and you look like proper comatose, like literally yeah, but, yeah, but his head's me. tilted to one side and yeah. his eyes are just staring at the floor yeah, and it's like, it's like a bit like, of dribble um, coming out of his mouth. It's, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's like when, you know, like in just normal conversation in general and you, like you've probably heard me tell a story I know, I know, many really. times and then we meet someone new and I'm like, oh. Let me tell you about what happened the other day, and you'll yeah, be like, "Actually, to oh be fair, God, not- when we walk the dog and you stop and talk to people, that, yeah, that's right, actually me. Head goes to the side, eyes oh, go yeah, wide yeah, open. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that question: Oh, what breed is he? Yeah, where did you get it, it from? Well, that's my trigger to start dribbling. Started, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, it's just the same thing. Like I'd heard you do that presentation like Several so many times. times. It was just a bit like. Not, so, a well, not a reflection on you. So let's try and... We're going to try and make this really interesting. For, this one's going out there, I don't yeah, care. <laughs> yeah, so what I thought we would do is kind of talk through <clears throat> the digestive system and kind of common problems that happen. And to do that, I kind of have to explain to everybody that, I mean, first of all, it's really important. I hope you know this by now if you listen to Fit Food Radio and, and, and read our books and, and follow us on Facebook. But the gut is just, it's where I start with everybody because actually there are loads of different systems in the body that we need to support, be that your immune system, um, be that your, your endocrine, your hormone system. And for that, we need our cells to function. And that takes a lot of vitamins and minerals and proteins. And I'm increasingly talking to people about the importance of, of micronutrients you know so but this is the thing isn't it like i think sometimes i mean you know the human body you know is well you know human body animals whatever when you think about it when you kind of learn something new about its function and why it does this and why it needs that it's mind-blowing right? oh yeah definitely. but the thing is i think people just think like you know like digestion which let's think about it like is huge when you digest food that you've eaten you know like which is essentially your fuel it's your you know like you know same as you put petrol or diesel in a car yeah, yeah. like you know this is where it's at so if absolutely that, if your gut health is off whack you know you're already kind of like you could be eating great scoff most of the time but it might not be put to the best use and it's like you just said you know every kind of function in the requires nutrients of some sort yeah so i think this would be really really interesting for you you know you kind of going through the kind of like the process from kind of like you know mouth to anus <laughs> So childish, Sam, Sam, right? Sounds like a song, Matt. <laughs> Should make a song. I mean, you've got head, shoulders, knees, and toes. It's only right there's one for digestion, as it's so important. I'll have a little think. Right, I'll so, get the keyboard out later. So, so I'll talk, I'll talk through the process, and you come up with a song by the end of the podcast. Cool. What rhymes with anus? Anyway, <laughs> um, let's start off with. So, you're absolutely right. Um, so, we do need to really focus on this, and uh, it is where I start with anus. <laughs> It is where I start with every single client because there's no point. Like, cool. I was actually thinking of it in my head then. <laughs> what, the jingle or the anus? Yeah, the jingle. <laughs> right, okay. Go on. Anyway. Think of what to sum it. Yeah, so I do start here with the gut stuff because there's no point me going, you definitely, I can look on a blood test and I can see that someone might need more magnesium, they might need more B vitamins or zinc. Um, that's that's really, we're getting um, really useful information <clears> now from, from just general blood tests you get from a GP or I might do like urine testing and look at like kind of byproducts of vitamins and minerals, but it's no good really looking at any of it if someone can't absorb it. So no matter what supplements I throw in there. Uh, one tip, interestingly, is you can do sublingual uh, nutrients in the meantime to kind of put, pick your levels up a little bit. Well, I, was, I suppose that was going to be a question, actually. Maybe this is a bit premature. You know, let's say a, a client has come to you, you know, just start with your, your initial consultation with them. Yeah. Okay, let's say for argument's sake, they want to lose some body fat. Uh, they complain about being bloated, maybe quite windy, lethargic. The kind of, I suppose, typical symptoms, if you like. At what point <clears throat> would you... Cause, you know, you're not just going to straight away be like, right, we need to get this tested, that tested. And we've spoken about this before yeah, on testing. Yeah. Like, what would be your kind of like initial actions before actually thinking, right, we need to look into the gut health further, if that makes sense? So that's a great question. I've always been a little bit more, um, I mean, it really depends on the client. So some people have done loads of good stuff already with their nutrition. They've been maybe even doing things like digestive enzymes, probiotics. They've, um, they've kind of come off processed foods. Um, and, and so for them, it's kind of like, well, they've done everything that I would have done had their diet not been so good and had they been eating in a really stressful environment, not chewing their food. So if I think they're kind of ahead of the game a little bit, then it might be, okay, I think we need to go down the route of some tests, which I will talk about on this podcast, what's available to you. So it's it's really independent. But my goal had always, has always been from the start, really, is to kind of only do that if I need to at the end. So I always like to spend a kind of 
the first session or the first few sessions with the client actually building up their health, building up their immune system. And this kind of came from, do you remember when me and you did our own kind of, we did our own digestive, we've talked about it before, but our own um, kind of digestive five uh, R protocol. So there's a, there's a, we've talked about it before, but there's the five R steps to heal your digestive system um, involve things like removing some of the foods and basically maybe going in there with what we call weeding. The weeding side is going in there with uh, oregano and herbs to get rid of any pathogens in the, in the mm. gut. And then you do the processes like restore, um, restore the digestive system and, and, you know, just support the body generally. And uh, when, when we first did one, I got really, really sick with, you know, kind of, they call it die off or Herxheimer's or a detox reaction, whatever it might be. And um, you'll remember this. I actually thought I wasn't going to make it through the night. I was so ill. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I reached out to tell uh, you that I, I loved it. you. and you know. tell, tell my mom I love her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I tried to reach out. I couldn't even lift my arm. So I had the most horrendous. I got a temperature. I was really sick. Um, and this can happen with clients. So you have to kind of build up their health status first before you go in with um, things like that. Act a bit like an antibiotic to kill things off. So, um, And again, even before I've done any testing, necessarily most people just from their symptoms and their health history and their medications i'll kind of know what their nutrient needs might be um, a big thing that i always look at is the the integrity of the gut barrier and um, so it's kind of colloquially called leaky gut but if that gut barrier is been breaking it's breaking down through anything like um you know high amounts of gluten in the diet lots of stress lots of um, exercise so obviously we're from the kind of fitness industry so very common in people who train a lot especially if you train intensely that that opening of the gut barrier is designed to be a bit of a stress response it's believed to have kind of some benefit to us as cavemen running from lions but kind of yeah, doing that, that five way. six times a week yeah. and then we've also got things like we don't really know what the effects of wi-fi or things like radiation so you know flying and things like that can be quite stressful to that gut barrier so that's something that I'm kind of I look at their health history I look at their lifestyle I look at the symptoms and think do you know what they definitely need some gut barrier support with bone broth etc but I suppose um what might be helpful now is if we go back through I'll, I'll just talk through some common things that I'll see and we've mentioned them on the podcast before things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth mm-hmm. but I suppose I've never really explained what that is uh, what the treatments might be some good resources and then basically um you know kind of um what your symptoms are so you you could kind of identify if that's something that you suffer from so um as we've kind of um <laughs> just said it might be helpful to go through digestion from start to finish yeah. uh, but basically you know some obvious factors starts in the mouth you've got to chew your food we've got enzymes in saliva um and even just smelling our food kick starts that process so well, we get well we always say don't we like you know i mean where as you know huge fans of cooking your own food as much as possible and you know when you're you know when you're kind of like chopping up your garlic and your onions and all of that you know all these beautiful amazing smells um you know and, and as Kerry said that's when the digestive process starts right yeah absolutely. you know like you know with the saying oh yeah it's making my mouth water you know when you walk past a baker's or yeah, a cafe yeah. and they've got the bacon sarnies on the go and you get that smell and you're like oh and it's that nice smell and your body's like, right, okay, cool, food's coming. So that's why you kind of get that saliva build up in the mouth because it's already starting the process, getting the enzymes ready to take the food in and, and work its magic, so to speak. So well, There are some studies actually saying that because that, the smell of food can stimulate appetite um, really? it's kind of stimulating digestion and there are some I can't remember where I read this it was a book recently saying that people who work in an environment where they see food all the time it's believed that some of their hormones keep elevating because they're expecting them to eat mm. because the smell is there and they can see the food so god imagine if you worked in a bakery or see I think this, this, this <laughs> is probably it. my problem as an ice cream man yeah, yeah although so, chronically elevated insulin but that was more a visual thing because I mean let's be honest ice cream don't really smell of nothing does it? It does. It does well. It might be like the toffee sauce and stuff they put yeah, on you it when you're going to, an ice cream you to get your, your nose right in clutch, you know what <laughs> I mean? Whereas the smell of bread, you yeah, know, you could yeah, be at a distance yeah. and you'll still get it. But yeah, for me, I suppose being surrounded by a soft scoop all day and whatnot. <laughs> so yeah, so there is that kind of, that we see food and it changes things, you know, as in our body reacts to that. So there mm-hmm. is some suggestion that if you are in an environment where you're seeing food all the time, it could be a bit detrimental. But anyway, so you... Um, there are some other tips as well where people are saying that it's helpful to do things like chew on a stick of celery or carrot just as you're getting dinner ready because that chewing motion we don't chew our food enough and if we do chew something like that that's quite <laughs> not that palatable like celery um, we'll really get the digestive enzymes being stimulated and it's kind of you're not going to wolf that down are you really so no, you no. can prepare the body and some other people say we, we talk about having 
not any olives or am I so the first point of digestion is that kind of chewing the food and that's why we talk about using a knife and fork and eating a bit more slowly really important because what's happening is the stomach is kind of getting ready to receive the food so if you think of the first bit is the chewing and the second stage is in the stomach and this is where we have the secretion of stomach acid and something called uh, pepsin which basically are really important for the breakdown of mainly proteins at this stage in digestion so at each of the phases we're going to go on to talk about small intestine large intestine or you can call it upper gut and lower gut um, different kind of macronutrients are broken down at different stages but quite a lot of uh, the, the start of protein digestion is in the stomach which, which is just really... to kind of, just to add sorry to to cut you off there but like with the chewing process like you know like it's we always say to people like you know don't underestimate like the power of like mechanical break ma- mastication <laughs> to give it its uh, you had to get that word i did in, i didn't did you? Oh, I when i learned that word for the first time i was like this is genius um <laughs> But, you know, like, uh, you know, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That, you know, like the more you chew your food, the more you... Because that, like, you're, you're breaking the food down. Absolutely, yeah. To start the digestive process. So the, the kind of, like, the more it's broken down when it actually kind of... Once you've swallowed it, the, the easier you're making things, you know. Yeah. So if you are, you know, if you're eating food in a stressful situation, you know, or maybe you're at work at your desk and you're trying to hit a deadline and you just smash your lunch back, you know, without even really thinking of it, not chewing your food, properly rushing it, you can imagine you kind of already set your, your body up for... A suboptimal digestive process, Definitely. And if that food goes undigested, especially proteins, into the digestive tract, we'll talk more about it in a second, but you're really going to feel that a little bit later. If Um, I stop buying in, we'll we'll get get it. Um, But one thing I was going to say is a lot of people tell me that they feel... Uh, worse after lunch like lunch is the one meal that really gives them some digestive discomfort be that kind of bloating wind or kind of a real kind of pain in the stomach and and the pain that you can experience and we've mentioned this before you know I nearly went to A&E with trap wind and you, you've been the same it can be really kind of like oh my gosh you know you think you've got appendicitis or something but you don't know where your appendix <laughs> is so you're trying to figure it all out but it can be really painful um, and then you kind of know because you move around a little bit and finally it will it will ease but lunch is the one because so many people eat it at their desk not concentrating it kind of gets thrown down really quickly you probably don't cook it yourself if mm-hmm. you take you know take lunch or you buy it on the go and then you sit so the other thing is you're sat in a kind of static position so you know think about the digestive system and it's um it kind of loops all the way around the body i think if you unfolded the the actual digestive tract they said it's like so many it's almost as big as a football pitch if you actually unfolded all the veli and everything's wow. huge and i went to a cadaver dissection uh, which is, you know, kind of, it was at Guy's Hospital as part of my nutrition course. And you could see they had the, the cadaver, so they have a dead body. And then they basically opened it up and showed you the digestive tract. And um, it's absolutely amazing, but it's it's really tightly um, kind of protected from the rest of the body because it is, it's kind of like the outside world comes into the body, essentially. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've gone off on the tangent there a little bit. But what were we saying? Yeah, so lunch is the one that affects people. And it's because of how we eat that lunch that we don't allow that kind of sufficient time for the for the body to break down the food and i have to say since getting a stand-up desk uh recently because we finally have a house that we're going to stay at hopefully for a long period of time i got a stand-up desk and i've definitely noticed i i I feel more energized after lunch Mm. standing so if you can if it's an option explore that it definitely helps in terms of not kind of squashing the gut for hours on end once you've eaten we often like suggest clients don't we like kind of try and eat your your lunch as close to the start of your break as possible so you leave time to only go for like a little stroll yeah, yeah, or something yeah, like some that afterwards. Air. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and give the body time to... So the next thing that, that, that you should really understand is so much of the digestive processes is actually governed by hormones. So hormones are responding to the expansion um, of the stomach and kind of feeding back to the brain. Okay, we've had some food. I think we've had enough. You can stop eating. Suppressing, do you remember, appetite hormone ghrelin. <laughs> so there's a lot of tag teaming going on where there's kind of, okay, the stomach receives the food. And it says, right, I need to secrete pepsin and, and, and hydrochloric acid. I need to break down this food. And then when it empties it down into the small intestine, um, again, we get more hormones being released that are kind of there to stimulate the production of, of bile, which is really important for fat digestion. But also, again, feeding back to the brain. Yep, we've, stomach's emptied. We're, we're done. We've got food. Let's slow things down now. No more food. So hormone health on every level is so important. We always talk about insulin and it's a good place to start. Um, but hormonal communication and, and what we're doing with our lifestyles being so busy, so distracted is we're really messing that hormonal 
communication system up. Um, but it's also worth knowing that hormones are made of, you know, um, if you think about it, hormones like everything in the body is going to be made up of protein, amino acids. So again, you have to have a digestive system to be able to even produce those hormones. Mm-hmm. And tons of micronutrients like vitamins and minerals are necessary to produce them. But that's a little bit of a, a, side, a side bit of information there. So once we're in the stomach, we're breaking down protein. Protein is is kind of folded up. So it has to be, it's like layered and it has to be unfolded first. And then it's got these kind of peptide bonds that have to be broken down. So we've got um, hydrochloric acid is your stomach acid. And then it's got, we have something called pepsin, which breaks those bonds. So what we really want um, to go into the small intestine and be absorbed into the body. So through the, through the, the wall of the small intestine is the smallest constituent of our food. So if it's a carbohydrate, it's going to be broken down into things like glucose, fructose, mm-hmm. so single molecules of sugar. And if it's a protein, it's going to be broken down into an amino acid. And if it's a fat, it's going to be broken down into um, fatty acids and triglycerol. And then all of that passes through and then it kind of might be put back together on the other side. Well, fats are anyway, because that might be stored as fat. Um, but things are basically broken down to the smallest layer. So think of the, um, once we've emptied out of the stomach, it's called chyme. Um, so it's kind of your stomach acid and then... Um, so also important to know, we want the stomach to be really acidic. So that's why things like uh, vinegars, lemons and limes can really help with that digestion of protein as well mm-hmm. in the acidic foods. When it enters the um, uh, stomach as chyme, it's kind of a mixture of, of, of mush. I always think of it as just mush when I was right. doing my exams. <laughs> What's chyme? Mush. Um, but th- when it's in the small intestine, we then get um, the liver stimulated. Uh, the pancreas is stimulated to release enzymes. The liver is stimulated to release or produce bile, sorry, and then that's delivered into the small intestine. And then your gallbladder also releases some bile. So we have something called the biliary tree, which kind of sits just around the liver. And it's right. like, think of it as like a little tree that's just delivering bile down. Right. And bile is really important for... A bile tree. <laughs> a bile tree for the emulsification of fats. So fats, in order for us to digest them or to break them up, if you think of... Um, you know when you put a fat with water, they separate, don't they? Yeah. So the way that a fat has to be broken down is, is basically it has to be emulsified first, which is what bile does, to get it into kind of tiny, 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 you said like the smallest constituent possible. And then all of this is going to pass through the wall of the small intestine. So this is where about 80% of our, I think that's the stat I've heard, um, it could be wrong, but about 80% of your nutrients are kind of being absorbed in the small intestine, mm. uh, which has three stages to it. You don't really need to know, but different things get absorbed at different times. And it kind of, the small intestine is really, really long. So uh, this goes on for a long while and there's kind of loads of tiny villi. A bit like, do you remember the lungs? I always remember the lungs when I was doing biology at school, having the, the kind of... Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. So the small intestine has the same thing, and, and that's just to increase the surface area. So same with the lungs. That's why we have the villi. It just means it's a greater surface area. So all of these, um, so many vitamins, minerals, and all our macros are absorbed here. Some absorption of um, um, some vitamins and minerals takes place in the stomach. And it is worth noting that we also need really good levels of things like vitamin A and zinc and B vitamins to be able to even produce things like stomach acid in the first place. So remember, and even the enzymes that our pancreas are going to release are made up of protein. So just to reinforce the importance of we are made of what we we are eating, essentially. So after it's been in the small intestine, basically... um, the kind of the food will travel down to the large intestine and this is where we've got all so the small intestine doesn't really have any bacteria in it so a very small amount of bacteria it's the large intestine where we've got you know we're all talking about the bacteria things like bifidobacteria lactobacillus e coli all that beneficial bacteria that's all located in the large intestine and we've got some yeast in there candida all beneficial stuff um so you mentioned e coli there (laughs) <laughs> so I can imagine a lot of people listening going, no, but E. coli, that's like... No, so there's just, that, there's different strains. That's so, really bad. No, no, there's different strains. So there's a, there's a strain that's of benefit to us and then there could be more pathogenic strains. Just like with yeast, there are strains of yeast. Um, you know, we all, we have yeast in the gut and we have it in a certain amount and there are some that are kind of uh, believed to be um, kind of symbiotic and they're meant to be there. You know, they, they kind of reside very happily with us and there are some things that we're kind of um, not so much, you know, we don't we don't like the effect that this might be having on the rest of the microbiome mm-hmm. or the, the rest of the bacteria. But do you know what? The one thing I'm learning, I was at a gut workshop last week. Um, so the test I use now is called the GI map, and that just basically looks at um, things like you just mentioned. So the really kind of what we might think the, the really bad uh, bacterial or, or viral infections that might be going on in the gut. And, and you can see them in the stool, like norovirus would be an example, or um, H. pylori, which is a bacteria that burrows into the gut wall. And again, and parasites and things like that. So that's the test I'm using. But they, they do, every workshop we go to, they kind of do say, we know so little about this, really. Yeah. We're still learning about what is, what's beneficial, what's not. And it does seem to be about the host. So um, 
blastocystis hominis is a parasite that when we we tested our stores and we both had it this was years ago when we first started doing these tests we both had it um and there was kind of a thought that well if you have symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome similar it's a chance that it's the blastocystis hominis causing it um but actually that that little guy might be living in perfect harmony with you and it's something more like you know um bacterial overgrowth that's causing your symptoms it's yeah. not it's not the parasite right so right, it's never right. as simple as you have a test done it's it's oh it's just going to be that one thing there that's causing yeah, your yeah, symptoms yeah. it's usually loads of stuff and it's usually the main thing is you don't have a strong enough immune system a strong enough kind of good army to keep the rest of the stuff in check so it might even be that on your test some stuff comes out that's um, not even that pathogenic or, or possibly dangerous but it's just not really offering you that much benefit so we know that certain bacteria tend to communicate with the immune system and lower inflammation right um, our immune system is really cool and i will i will crack on and get to the anus at some point but <laughs> our immune system have so many different ways that but basically the gut bacteria kind of speak through the gut wall to the immune system various different cells of the immune system and they're communicating the environment what's going on do we need mm-hmm. like a, an immune response do we need some inflammation and there's some immune cells that kind of almost like dip their toe back into the gut and say what's going on down here like a little kind of Almost like a submarine kind of just pop in. It's, um, you know, like a viewing. What would that thing be called that comes out of a submarine? Telescope. Telescope, yeah. yeah. That kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> in, into the gut to try and look at what's going on in that environment. And then right. the gut um, barrier itself is kind of like, you know, almost like a car park. And if it's, if it's full of people that shouldn't, or like kind of bacteria that shouldn't be there, then your kind of beneficial uh, bacteria can't colonise like they should be able to. So we are still learning so much of this stuff but the basics can you know the gi map test which is kind of the latest um i'd say the latest kind of technology with stool testing it tries to more kind of quantify the amounts of bacteria that you've got going on in the gut and it's supposed to be a bit more accurate um, because it doesn't rely on we used to culture the stool we used to almost um ferment the stool and see what would grow uh, whereas now with the gi map testing they're kind of more accurately able to count what bacteria are in there what kind of um, signs of any virus parasites infections that stuff that kind of stuff so just thinking back to kind of like stress yeah you know and you know you know you know chronic stress whatever you want to kind of call it you know we've always said like as we mentioned earlier kind of just does have a huge impact on your you know on digestion and most people will often associate like um bouts of like quite severe bloating with being really stressed at work or maybe like um, a family situation or whatever it may be like, would you be able to kind of like um, explain a little bit as to why that is? I mean, because obviously like an obvious thing to think would be that if you are, say, like in a moment of like acute stress, say, like you say, going back to, you know, maybe we, haven't, we were running from danger. Yeah. You know, you, you know, when you, your cortisol levels are up, you know, you're hardly going to go, well, quit, I just have a quicker BLT. Um, (laughs) you know in that kind of moment of stress you just want to kind of get away from the stress and once you're kind of calming down you might eat whereas I think in this day and age we're very much kind of like at work and don't get me wrong we we say this time and time again like you know don't fear stress like we need stress in our lives to to function well but I think there's this there's a a huge huge culture now especially in like cities you know in London you know like you said like walking you know eating on the app literally eating on the go like rush rushing to a meeting and wolfing down a rack or whatever you know so what is it that that's what's kind of going on inside to where you know like cortisol levels are up that's so disruptive to digestion okay so i suppose the last bit i'll just just say so we get there finally is the the last bit of the lower intestine is all about there's a bit of absorption of electrolytes out into the body there's some reabsorption of some water and all the waste products from Mm -hmm. kind of internal metabolic um processes that have been going on all those toxins and then obviously you pass the stool and um you're right to highlight stress because all of this is done. So the movement side of it, if you think about how you move your body anyway, it's all done via the nervous system. Mm-hmm. So that kind of governs just signals around the body. Um, the, the nervous system that kind of, um, well, that kind of operates during the times of when we're digesting our food is, is parasympathetic. It's called the parasympathetic, parasympathetic <laughs> nervous system, or it might also be called rest and digest mode. And then the opposite of that is fight or flight um, or sympathetic nervous system mode. Mm-hmm. So one is like stress mode when we need to essentially think of everything related to adrenaline. We need to be like, we need a high heart rate, high blood pressure. We need uh, high le- levels of blood glucose to fuel a muscle. We need to be able to act fast, very vigilant. Um, digestion is just non-negotiable. You know, we, like we don't need it right now. It's not essential to, to our survival. Neither is reproduction. So all of that goes on the back burner. So if you are in a state of chronic stress, 
Not only does it mean that you're kind of, um, we have something called the vagus nerve, which goes from the brain to the gut, which will kind of kick in the digestive process. It was very important for kind of feeding back, okay, I'm going to eat some food now, I'm relaxed, you can get going with your digestive processes, everything is safe. And so there are some key things that you can do to stimulate the vagus nerve prior to eating just sitting down and breathing really deeply. So if you kind of, you know, I often say to people, put your hand on your stomach and really make your belly rise, belly fall, because you wouldn't be able to do that in times of stress Mm -hmm. with very shallow breathers. I did read, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, that putting your legs up against the wall does the same thing because it kind of feeds back where you're obviously not stressed because you've got your legs up against the wall. (laughs) I don't know that that's what it does, but that was kind of uh, my interpretation of it um so those kind of things are really important for kind of taking you out of stress mode feeding back to the body that it's okay uh, because there is that kind of there is a kind of motor element to the digestive system so peristalsis is what gets the food going down the esophagus so when we get problems with you know even things like circulation and, and nervous system signaling people can struggle to kind of swallow their food and you know kind of esophageal function might go yeah uh, which is very common as as, as you get older um, the next thing I say is then down in the stomach, obviously, we might get a kind of um, blunting in the secretion of stomach acid because, again, it's kind of like it's not it's not time to digest protein, Yeah. Um, which is, again, really, really bad. If you're kind of wolfing down a protein based meal, you're going to feel that later if you, if you don't have that adequate stomach stomach um, stomach acid. But a big one that we um, I, one of the most common things that I tend to see would be um, um, dysbiosis, where we're kind of like not the right balance of good and bad good and bad bacteria which can be linked to everything from diet to stress um, and even your environment so we lived in a city for years and you think about it there's the, the lack of kind of exposure to nature especially yeah. when we worked in a gym yeah, yeah. we saw Based any nature gym, yeah. yeah we lived in common garden <laughs> yeah so that would have had a quite you know quite, been a quite sterile environment for our gut bacteria so it would have affected everything from our skin bacteria you know all of our immune system um, but also the valves so i talked to you before about there's a valve at the bottom of the esophagus between the esophagus and the stomach, there's a valve that then at the bottom of the stomach where everything enters into the small intestine. And then you've got valves between the upper and the lower gut. And they are all controlled again by the nervous system, but they're all affected by our stress hormones. So often what people will find is um, if your stress levels are too high, it might be that the valves are um, staying. So if your stress hormones are too high, the valves might stay shut because they're like, oh, don't, don't, don't do anything. You know, it's really stressful. But then what if you're kind of adrenally, um, what if you're a bit exhausted and your, your cortisol levels, that's the, that's the kind of, cortisol is our stress hormone, but it's the hormone that wakes us up. But people get low levels if there's some form of dysfunction in the body. And that can be an immune system thing going on. It doesn't necessarily mean you're, there is no such thing anymore as adrenaline fatigue. That, that's, a, that's, that's been and gone now. <laughs> yeah, it's no longer, that was no. so yesterday. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no such thing now. The, the adrenal glands were thought to atrophy and not produce cortisol because you exhausted them. And that's not really, that theory has not been, well, it's been chucked out the window, basically. But we know that in some people, they get low levels of cortisol, but the mechanism is thought to be more kind of chronic inflammation and the body's feeding back, you know, kind of stop the adrenals from releasing mm-hmm. the cortisol or there's a feedback problem to the brain. So that low level of cortisol might mean that the valves stay open. And this is when we might get the kind of bacteria from the lower gut going into the upper gut. Um, so do you remember I said the, the small intestine shouldn't have any bacteria there, but if it does, it causes so many symptoms that would be typically known as <laughs> irritable bowel syndrome because it gives you that kind of excess bloating, that wind. Um, often people can hear it because mm. as soon as they eat a meal, um, they'll start to hear the gurgling and the, yeah, and the yeah. kind of fermentation process in the in the upper gut. Um, so some people call it upper gut fermentation, but generally it's it's known as SIBO, small mm. intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And I think it's one of the most common things that I see in my client base. Um, and there are so many different causes from medications to stress to alcohol to um processed foods too much sugar um generally i think just changing the way we're eating is is a big cause of it which um, you know i was going to say actually like um because something i come across um, a fair bit is people feeling quite a lot of discomfort uh, after their first meal after a workout yeah so let's say for example you know you've trained you know it's, it's, you've gone to the gym before where you've pushed yourself pretty hard so as we know kind of like intense exercise kind of raises cortisol and whatnot and then people kind of leave the gym and maybe they're on a bit of a tight 
time scale to get from the gym to work and whatever. Uh, plus, they they probably developed a bit of an appetite. Um, but cortisol levels are no doubt still up. Yeah. And then they tend to like quickly rush down like a tub of a, a bowl of porridge or you know post workout oats or whatever it may be. And I, that's a big question that I get is people kind of saying, "Oh, why is it my first meal after a workout always bloats me?" Yeah. And I think for a lot of the time it's just that people are, like, haven't necessarily kind of like like cooled down properly, got their body back down to definitely, definitely. to kind of like base levels, if you know what I mean, yeah. cortisol levels back down and whatnot. And that's why another reason why I talk about the importance of a... You need to come a, back and just eat a stick of celery. That's what I mean. <laughs> oh, yeah, get that down your yeah. post-workout. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's just what you want. I'm just going to have no, some I mean, celery. Because I always talk about when, when people finish a workout, yeah, yeah. you know, invest a bit of time in a cool down. Yeah. And a big part of my cool down is actually sometimes just laying there doing naff all. Breathing. And I just lay yeah. there and I might close my eyes or I might not, uh, depending on who's around me. <laughs> <laughs> is it safe? <laughs> um, and just, you know, just take some nice deep breaths because yeah. I'm like, that's that we're starting the recovery process right now. Yeah. You know, the recovery process doesn't start tomorrow or later on today. Let's start it right now. Deep breaths, get the heart rate back down. Very good. Get yeah. stress levels back down. Put your legs up against the wall. Yeah, why Hamstring not? Hamstring stretch. You can do that. <laughs> um, before actually then, you know, going to have a shower and, yeah. you know, have a little stretch out, whatever it may be. And then you kind of eat. Yeah. And you're I mean, in a, you know, so you're ideally in a slightly less stressed state. Yeah. You're not so kind of like, oh, 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 oh quick, I'll get my, my post-workout meal down me. Like. Well, the thing is that that kind of post-workout uh, window has been questioned a lot anyway mm-hmm. because of that reason. So, again, from, from the background that we came from, I saw a lot of gut issues in people from that kind of intense training um, and definitely feel that there's, you know, it's, this is going to be individual. Some people come back hungry and they can eat and they're fine. Um, but other people definitely need to kind of have that little break. And it might be that you reconsider your post-workout meal not around macros, but around digestibility. So, you know, actually sometimes things like a, a protein powder or a very slow cooked meal. So if you if you make sure the food is, is warm for a start, that, that's going to be a bit more digestible than something mm-hmm. that's cooked and cooled or, or raw salads if you're kind of getting your greens in. So um, yeah, I believe even the way that an egg is cooked completely transforms the kind of digestibility of it so i think if it's like scrambled it's way easier than a cold boiled egg it's completely different so, yeah, so yeah. have a little look at but what i've always said to you um, because you train intensely kind of um just favoring a bit more cooked food is probably going to be easier on your digestive system we need raw food um it's good it kind of offers a different benefit but maybe on, a bit on more readily available yeah like on rest days or you know kind of and again this could be a seasonal thing as well it sounds daft but you know in the summer you're going to eat kind of more of the raw foods whereas um you know kind of in winter you tend to eat more cooked foods whatever you way you want to flex it we need That's both yeah but your post-workout meal, look at the digestibility of it. And that's why I think some people feel that having a, a, a kind of a good quality protein powder immediately, mm-hmm. then waiting a little while before eating anything solid and then chewing, have your celery, and then eat, then eat your meal. Yeah, yeah, guys, you, you don't have to do the celery. <laughs> we, Kevis is trying to make it a thing. <laughs> yeah. The celery diet. The celery diet. Actually, is that, isn't it? that's probably already a bloody diet. It actually burns calories, doesn't it? Oh, that's, that's, that's the thing. Toffee. That's right. All what women ate of, it. What a load of toffee. Sprouts as well, apparently. <laughs> oh, really? Mm, post-workout sprouts. Well, I love sprouts, so... Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts. sprouts. Yeah, Brussels. Oh, gosh. Um, anyway. But, but no, I was going to say, because a, a big thing of late is a... It's not necessarily a big thing, but I'm probably... I'm just seeing it more, and that's people who are kind of a bit like, oh, do we even need whey protein shakes? Do we need to have post-workout shakes? Like, uh, I just don't think we need it, la, 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 la. And I'm like, well, first of all, you know, I actually class whey a good quality whey protein shake as food you know i don't class it as a supplement because it's not really a supplement per se because it's got the same you know it's essentially protein you know the same yeah. as a steak is protein chicken is protein um you know and it's, it's made up of, of, of uh, amino acids but also so, just, just to support you on that fact it's kind of not going to have the same amount of lactose or casein as milk so it might be more digestible it is more digestible yeah. to somebody who's kind of going, well, why not just have milk then? That, yeah, that might be the response exactly. that you get to that. Exactly. Yeah. There's other constituents and, in there. You know, and we both know that there are actually benefits to whey beyond just simply being very readily available by the body and quickly absorbed. Um, but for me, it kind of takes the pressure off people to kind of, like I mentioned earlier, rush to get a meal down them as soon as possible after their workout because they know they're about to dive in a meeting as soon as they get to work and and this, that, and the other. So you'd almost be better off having, you know, that protein shake post-workout 
um, you know, be it immediately after, within 30 minutes, whatever, it doesn't matter. This whole 30 minute window is a load of toffee. But, you know, it takes that pressure off because you know you've kind of replenished your protein, you've got that shake down you, so you don't necessarily uh, need to worry about getting a meal down you as soon as possible. If you do go a few hours before actually eating a meal again, that's absolutely fine. So it just kind of takes that pressure off a little bit. And as I mentioned, whey is just very, very kind of like easily digested and easily absorbed by the body. So, but get yourself a good one. So another point to mention, this, this, and this is very much related to, we're going to call it SIBO now. That's fine, isn't it? Everyone knows what I'm talking about. So that's when your, your bacteria has migrated from the, upper, from the lower gut to the upper gut. Uh, the reason this is massively problematic is because this is where all your nutrients are absorbed. And if you get this bacterial overgrowth, not only are you getting lots of kind of, you can be kind of um, a little bit windy, bloated. Um, sorry, Hamish is having a dream. I don't know if you guys can hear. It's him squeaking, not me. Squeaking away. And, and then kicking and, and away. Kicking. It's like so jogging in this dreaming about having a fight. <laughs> Where was I? What was I saying? Yeah, so it, it's a real hindrance to absorption. So what happens is the SIBO occurs, um, and I go through uh, another trigger can be food poisoning, by the way. Um, and then once the SIBO is present, we get that malabsorption, and therefore we get um, basically malnutrition because we're not getting the right amount of nutrients from our food anymore. Mm-hmm. So one of the key things that you have to make sure that you're doing to firstly avoid getting uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth but definitely if you already have it is to look at the spacing between your meals because if you're a grazer and I used to be when I was in an office I always had nuts and seeds on my desk I used to just kind of thought I was hungry but I wasn't but I definitely ate every at least every three hours if not sometimes every two hours and if I was going to the gym I'd be like oh I need a snack in me and then I'd run and then wonder why I had really bad stomach ache and <laughs> I felt terrible um, because actually those gaps between the meal is when the digestive system runs kind of a bit of a cleansing wave. Um, and it's called um, the migrating motor complex that basically it's kind of like a what it's like a washover, but also things like food poisoning um, can really upset this or even things like surgery can really upset this. And if that doesn't happen, then this is believed to be one of the big causes of SIBO. And if you kind of treat the SIBO and it comes back, it might be because um, you call it the MMC it just isn't working properly. So again, this is a kind of a nervous system thing as well. So we need to look at stress levels. Um, but you can get something called prokinetics, which basically helps to stimulate the MMC so that it does happen. But you've also got to be fasting in between meals. And it might be also be a reason for kind of fasting pre-workout or why you feel better. I know I always feel better training fasted. So I either train early in the morning or I wait at least three hours before. Um, and there could be various, you know, People might go, it's because she's got sluggish digestion, whatever. And it definitely have a history of SIBO. So for me, it definitely works better to just be fasted. But try and get towards kind of four four hours, at least three, but more like four hours in between meals and have a longer fast overnight, which in Fitter 16, I was <laughs> very kind of um, um, steadfast about this. And I've even drawn diagrams of, of like four different days, depending on when you get up, what time you might eat, as to when each meal should be and how you could still get the fast in overnight. And the thing with meal times is we've got a bit like, oh, we need to wake up and have breakfast at this time, you know, or, yeah, yeah. and it's got a bit a bit prescriptive. And actually some people, you know, I was up early this morning at five. So um, I ended up having breakfast, you know, I kind of read my hunger and I'm like, yeah, I'm hungry this morning and had breakfast at six. Yeah. So my lunch was like 11, which pe- some people, if I was in the office, they'd be like, no, that's not lunch. Yeah. <laughs> that's brunch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically, if I was in the office, they'd be like, it's a little bit greedy. She's having lunch at 11. Like, can't she wait? Uh, but I don't want to have a snack and then have lunch and then, you know, so so lunch is 11 and then it's going to be probably an earlier dinner. But that's and then I'm going to be tired because I've got five. It's, it's that so. kind of power of adaptation, isn't yeah, it, that yeah. we often talk about in that, you know, there is no set times for your meals. You know, there is no set meal frequency per day because some days I, I'll just stick to my three square meals a day. Some days I might eat four meals. Some days it might be three square meals with a little snack because I felt that I needed it, be it because it might have been a training day or you know, particularly hard sesh, whatever it may be, or it might just be that my body felt it needed a little bit more. Yeah. But like you just said, I think the big thing there was, you know, like there are some days where, I mean, we sometimes have dinner at like five o'clock. Yeah, yeah. Um, just because it was a really early start. So our first meal of the day was a lot earlier. Yeah. Our lunch was a lot earlier. And then it just means that we have an earlier dinner and it's no big deal. No. You know, like it doesn't have to be, dinner doesn't have to be after 7 p.m. It can be, you, yeah, know, yeah. If, if, you know, if that's the situation, but the I mean, power like, of adaptation is huge. Late night eating is a big thing that I talk to clients about. And again, on, on Fit16, we did say stop eating, you know, 
two to three hours before bed is the best thing for everything from your hormone health to your digestive system. Like as soon as it becomes nighttime, the body metabolically is switching into a different mode. Your cells detect it's nighttime, yeah. you know, and, and they're kind of like, okay, we're going to, we're going to wind down now. We're going to do some other stuff. We're not going to be, basically, we're not going to be breaking down food because it's nighttime. Mm. That's what your cells think. But you then tell them differently by kind of having a really late night snack. So it is really helpful. And that might just be the one thing that you work on for like a month is, is stopping eating after there used to be loads of diets, actually. I remember even celebrities who go, I never eat after six when I've got, you know, an Oscar award yeah, coming the, on. The, 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 the it doesn't need to be like that. The silly thing with that is, though, is a lot of the times when you speak about eating after a certain time, it, people aren't talking from a health and hormone it's perspective. A, no, that's a rule. It's that's all a, of like, yeah. oh, because of the stardust body fat, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. it's like, a, you know, all these silly daft myths that hopefully, you know, we've done a good job of uh, shattering yeah. over the years. But um, but you would benefit from stopping eating as soon. Well, I'd say, I kind of say as soon as it's comfortable and feasible. Yeah. So so we kind of stop from about eight o'clock, don't we? And you're sometimes going to go... Or I'm a bit peckish, I'm going to go back. Little, uh, you know, little but then often, actually, since knowing all of this stuff, you've started to say to yourself, am I hungry or am I just kind of like, oh, I'm watching a film and I want to have some food? Yeah. You know, is it kind of a Which habit? is often the case. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, no one's really hungry for ice cream. <laughs> no, well. You know, you don't, you don't eat ice cream when you're hungry. Yeah. But you if you were <laughs> going to have the ice cream, and this is the other thing, if you're going to have the dessert, have them around your meal. So keep the, the windows when you have your food just shorter and that can be shorter across the day. So your eating window is kind of like, you know, nine till seven or, or whatever it might be. But also shorten. So so there are bigger fasting periods across the day. So if you're going to have, you know, chocolate after dinner, don't have chocolate and then don't eat your dinner. And then two hours later, have the chocolate. Eat everything around that mealtime. So the body digests that. And then it's got chance to do, break it all down, absorb it. And then it's, you know, does other stuff. Um, but just going back to the, the SIBO, the, the biggest kind of thing that a doctor, or the, sorry, the most common thing a doctor will say to you or might do uh, is recommend a low FODMAP diet. Um, and FODMAPs are basically kind of fermentable carbohydrates. And think of them as like the windy vegetables. So you've got your broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower. Classics. Yeah, onions. So you can Google online and look at, um, you know, what is FODMAPs and, and things like lactose and fructose. And so some, some fruits are really high in the sugars that are fermented. So these foods are going to give you more symptoms. And um, it used to be that you go on a low FODMAP, or some people call it a low fermentable diet, mm-hmm. um, to treat the SIBO. And it will definitely help. And I remember the first time I did this, do you remember, I, I think for about 48 hours, I said to you, I was like, Matt, I've not broken wind, but like 48 hours, this is incredible, this has never happened before. I don't know if you remember that occasion we went out for dinner, because I had had no, such bad... <laughs> don't remember you going 40 hours without fire. Because when I had had such bad stomach issues up until that point, so it was like, it was such, it was like a, an epiphany for me. But then um, what became clear is not only is a low FODMAP diet so hard to follow, I was cutting out so many foods, that eventually I was starting to get kind of symptoms of, of just, I actually ended up getting other digestive issues, you know, so like constipation and other stuff. So um, the problem with the low FODMAP diet is you remove so many prebiotic foods, so many fibres. Yeah. So although it brings symptom relief, it should just be a temporary intervention. Yeah, it's not, not a long term. No, so kind of two weeks max. And what I would uh, point everyone to is there's a great app now. If you go into your phone and just search on, along the apps, there's a SIBO app which is brilliant and you can kind of um, put in whether you're doing um, a paleo diet or an autoimmune diet and it will kind of give you FODMAP uh, scorings and ratings for different foods. Foods, yeah. That's really helpful. I wish I'd had that because it's a nightmare trying to figure out FODMAPs. Yeah. But the next step is basically that you have to then kill the bacteria off in the small intestine, which you can either go down the route of there's an antibiotic route that's um, been popularised, well, sorry, not popularised, but uh, Mark... um, I think it's, his name is, I don't know if you say Pimientel or Pimientel. Um, I actually got his book years ago that is called, um, I think it was the IBS, I think it's the IBS Solution. And this is before I was even in the industry, I'm, I got hold of this book. Um, but he basically talks about uh, taking um, Cyfaximin, which is an antibiotic, to clear the bacteria in the small intestine. And you might need another one called erythromycin and they will help. Um, and in most cases, that might be all you need to do. Um, and then obviously, whatever might have caused it, if it was food poisoning, it's then kind of about just uh, watching how you eat and, and just keeping an eye on symptoms returning. You still need to have a good, you know, a basically good natural whole foods diet because 
know, refined carbs and sugar and things like that are really going to... That was going to kind of be my question, actually, because, you know, we mentioned earlier about kind of, you know, you know, your body requires nutrients in order to do its job properly, yeah, yeah. every action in the body. But let's keep it specific to digestion, yeah. right? So we, you're, you're talking about, you know, the food comes in, um, into the small intestine, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if things are a bit off, your body's not necessarily able to absorb as much of nutrients as possible. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So if, say, someone starts to supplement yeah. uh, vitamins, minerals, etc., to try and help boost this up, how does that work in that if your kind of absorption's already off, you know, does it matter, you know, is taking supplements even going to help? Or is there something that needs to be done first before you would actually start taking supplements? Um, yeah, Does that great, make sense? great question. So, so what you can do in the interim period is, so first of all, only eat a nutrient dense diet. So block out, you know, dropping things like the grains can be really helpful because phytates can block absorption, and and you know, so and you'd want to drop out things like legumes as well, which might be causing more fermentation and wind. So not get necessarily forever, but no, 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 no actually, in the yeah. initial phases. So that's where the paleo diet just comes into its own, really, in terms of helping people get symptom relief and a bit better with absorption. Then you might want to um, add, actually take hydrochloric acid. So you can take it as a supplement and you can take digestive enzymes and you can take ox bile. So you could support your digestive processes a little bit more. Again, just as an intervention mm-hmm. to kind of increase your absorption. Um, if it's not SIBO, if it's more kind of dysbiosis um, down in the lower gut, then you are going to, those because the other thing that can go wrong, we haven't even talked about the other stuff, we have to do a second podcast, but is if it was low stomach acid or if you weren't producing enough bile or you had maybe kind of gallbladder stones or something like that, then it's you could support the infrastructure of the digestive system a little bit better. And so that's what these what that's what the ox bile and the, the digestive enzymes and the stomach acid will do. Um, you could look at doing um, topical um, nutrients, so things like a magnesium oil, like better you would be good and an Epsom salts bath. Um, you could do some sublingual so you can now get things like b12 and folate lozenges zinc lozenges where you suck the sweet or you can do sublingual um liposomal which is kind of almost encapsulated in fat and all of this can kind of go under the tongue and hold it under the tongue and it's kind of a direct route into the body so if you've got kind of real i mean all of this should be done under with a practitioner mm-hmm. don't self-treat i didn't i initially was always with a practitioner yeah um it, you know, um, but if you've got real signs of deficiencies, so you've got your blood test there, you've got some symptoms, you know, you've got kind of poor growth, your nails are breaking, your hair is, is kind of falling out, you've got signs and symptoms of so many nutrient deficiencies, then I would go in with kind of sublingual, liposomal, topical, um, and, and and support the digestive system as much as possible because you just want that person to feel better, you know, which you would do in a week or so with those dietary changes and mm. supplements. The real change will come over a course of about 12 weeks and I have to explain that to a lot of people. It's going to take about 12 weeks to transform at kind of right down cellular level. So be really patient. Um, but again, if you're, if you're really suffering, but... Um, and if somebody kind of, I mentioned before, some people just need their immune system building up a little bit first as well. So I'll often use a gut barrier support nutrient formula. So um, you have things like bone broth, of course, and you can take collagen as a supplement. Um, but I will often use um, nutrients like um, uh, you can get formulas that contain aloe vera, glutamine, N-acetylglycosamine. And these are what the gut barrier is made of. And it kind of helps with the the kind of mucosal cells that, that line the esophagus and, and the gut barrier helps them to kind of regenerate a little bit. So for most people where I kind of suspect a leaky gut, I'll say, right, okay, let's go gluten-free because we know that um, in gluten can elevate a protein called zonulin, which opens up the gut even more. It's not that everyone needs to do a gluten-free diet, but someone who's not well, I'm just going to take it out and try and fix the gut first. But also as well, like we often talk about this, don't we, in that, you know, you know, the kind of like the gluten-free market is booming right yeah, now. Yeah, and there was, I read a stat the other day about how much the gluten-free market is worth yeah. compared to actually how many people are diagnosed as celiac. And it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, like, yeah. But then, you know, we, we know that there are some people that aren't necessarily celiac but are sensitive to gluten. Yeah. But, you know, let's look at it in a simple context that, you know, most foods that contain gluten tend to be, you know, quite processed yes so you know you're not just taking out the gluten you're taking out the kind of processed you're taking out flour you're taking out usually uh, fast-acting yeast as well which is is kind of very problematic to the gut nobody's Mm. eating 24-hour fermented bread anymore it's it's kind of it's just 
it's, diff- it's a different product mm-hmm. full of exactly. additives, That's preservatives. What we say, don't we? One thing we should add, and I don't know why this never occurred to me, but additives and preservatives, you know, like their job is to kill off bacteria in our food. So what do you think it's doing to your gut bacteria? You know, exactly. <laughs> exactly that, yeah. And that they're in so many sports supplements, and that's one of the reasons I, I kind of cut out, not that I took a lot of sports supplements, but there's there's a few, again, and I, we've kind of list, I did list them for Fit16 and said, look at these. We don't even have them, but um, I think it's carboxycellulose is one. I think that's how you say it. Um, I think sucralose, I can't remember, no, I can't, that's, that's a sweetener. But there was a few that were kind of coming up as very kind of aggressive on the gut bacteria and, and kind of decreasing things like bifido. So, you know, just take them out of your food where possible. And, and you know, I even, um, you know, just stick to something like a really a, a liquid stevia, a good quality stevia if you kind of wanted to remove sugar completely. But obviously go back to things like fruit, raw honey, and just proper kind of unrefined cane sugar. You know, that would be a better option than, than some of these kind of, you know refined sweeteners so um in terms of um the last thing i can say with this, the SIBO side of things that i've mentioned the antibiotics and some people also have what we call the prokinetics to get that that do you remember the migrating motor complex working better again so it doesn't come back um as well as looking at everything we've kind of talked about um with your nutrition but the other side of it is you can do it with kind of herbs as well and natural antimicrobials so um, things like oregano, ADP oregano is is, is one of the, the kind of formulas that a lot of uh, practitioners might use. Berberine is very good. Um, garlic is fantastic. Generally, you'd use a couple and you'd use them um, maybe on rotation so that you're kind of um, just making sure you get to everything. And if there's a relapse, you kind of catch it again. Um, but what I was going to say about SIBO, one of the most important things is... Um, it will lead to other things. So as I mentioned, because it causes those nutrient deficiencies, then t- other things might happen further on down in the mm-hmm. gut because if there's a nutrient deficiency, then maybe we can't produce enough enzymes or stomach acid or maybe, you know, this kind of affects our, our beneficial bacteria. So opportunistic infections are able to infiltrate because um, the body's immune system is then struggling because we haven't got the nutrients, we're not getting fueled. Mm-hmm. so that's when we'll get things like yeast overgrowth or you know kind of other infections so um you can do things like you know the gi map which kind of tells you the big big guns in terms of infections bacterial infections um you know campylobacter things that a doctor would test for yeah. and then it looks at your digestive capacity so it looks at things like your production of, of enzymes from the pancreas um, and then it looks at things like the, your beneficial bacteria and then maybe some some what we call opportunistic bacteria um, there might be too much of that and yeast as well parasites um, so that that test is really useful for, for all of that but the the last thing I'm going to mention is um, something called secretory IgA which is produced at the gut barrier and it's kind of your first line defense against infection and again once we get things like SIBO or just say like somebody who's very stressed out been training loads perhaps as well mm-hmm. this is another key factor we get really low levels of this secretory IgA which is your first line defense of the immune system and at the um workshop with in vivo clinical who do the gi map the guy that was talking to us had been going for 25 years can you imagine me in 25 years time i'm gonna bore the pants off people in terms of like <laughs> it'll be all i've ever done all i've ever known no no one will ever invite me to dinner but um he was saying the one thing that he always if he could only test for one thing in a client he would test sega levels um, and kind of use that and then spend a good month bringing up their SIGA levels with things like probiotics, all of those nutrients I mentioned that help the barrier, aloe vera, uh, licorice was one I didn't mention, so you can get deglic- I think deglycerized, I don't know how to say that word, deglycerized licorice so it doesn't act like um, an adaptogenic herb, you know, bringing up horse Um Proper licorice, don't you? <laughs> not, like not licorice all sorts, no. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, the licorice, uh, aloe vera, I've already mentioned glutamine, probiotics, Saccharomyces boulardii, which is a beneficial yeast. All of these were mentioned for kind of lifting up SIGA levels. So again, just making some, and vitamin D. SIGA. Yeah, SIGA. <laughs> yeah, so very, very important. So that is a, a kind of, I think I've pretty much covered everything there. So we've talked about upper gut, lower gut. So we can have, um, just in summary, you can have a problem of uh, the kind of infrastructure of the digestive system and not working. So you're not producing stomach acid, you're not producing enzymes, you're not producing bile, or the barrier isn't intact, or the valves aren't working properly. So they can be investigated. um, They can be investigated by blood tests, by stool tests. You might even have cameras going down or up 
just to kind of look at the, mm -hmm. the integrity of the gut. Um, but then you can also have the environment of the gut, which is the most common thing that, yeah. that I tend to see needs addressing. And that's when we've got, you know, bacteria in the upper gut, in the, in the small intestine. Well, so I always think like a really great example of like kind of like environment is, yeah. you know, that one where you say like if you put, you know, let's say you go to the butchers and you stock up on some meat and you put that meat in your freezer and of course it freezes and it will stay in there and, you know, you can leave it in there for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, right? Yeah. But then say there was a power cut and you were away on holiday, say you went on a long holiday, a few weeks, there's a power cut, all the meat defrosted. Yeah. And then <clears throat> you'd come home and then all of a sudden all the bacteria yeah, yeah. that would have would have thrived, but it wasn't that the bacteria somehow managed to open up the freezer and climb in the drawer and then do its thing. Yeah, the yeah. bacteria was already there. Yeah. But because it's in a freezer, yeah. it wasn't in the right environment for it to kind of thrive, if you will. So it's okay. all about the environment. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's what you're... And, and what do you think is the most powerful tool? It's your nutrition that you're, nutrition. you're putting in your body and how. So that's how you eat the environment that you eat in. So environment internally and externally... Well, that's, having, that's our kind of big thing, isn't it? It's not necessarily just what you ate, it's how you ate it and the environment that you ate it in. Yeah, right? absolutely. So that's just a bit of a summary. So if you have been turned away by a GP and given that diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome, there's a chance that it's actually more like some kind of bacterial viral infection, dysbiosis, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So what what are you looking to cover in part two then? No, does that 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 will that, be this that, episode. That, you think we, <laughs> yeah. we managed to cram it in there? I think yeah. so. We could do a Q and A awesome. session. Well, maybe on the, on the gut. So Might be helpful. Just real quick, wrap this. This will wrap it up. Yeah, just quick fire. Yeah. You know what are like um you know some kind of top tips that people could do, and maybe for now just think kind of let's think a stage before supplementation or any kind of testing, you know, what are kind of like a few things that people could do to potentially improve their kind of digestion and gut health? So I'd move to uh, eating fit food style because it's unprocessed. Get our recipe book. And um, because I do kind of with clients who've got um, chronic digestive problems, I go grain free, dairy free because that some of the proteins can cross over. If the gut barrier is not intact, I didn't really mention this, mm what happens is undigested or incompletely digested food gets to cross over into the body when it shouldn't. And that kind of sequence of, of amino acids in that food might look a little bit like tissues in the body and then we can get autoimmunity. So that's just one of the ways. So I would move over to kind of um, fitter food style of eating. Paleo-ish. So Paleo-ish. It's going to be nutrient dense. Um, I would... Um, cook. Cook the food. And if you, if again, if your digestion is bad, I'd be looking at slow cooking your food and things like um, stews and soups because again they're going to be cooked for longer. Mm. I definitely, um, me personally, if I if I slow cook food, it just is totally different for me in terms mm -hmm. of I get no symptoms whatsoever. Um, whereas sometimes if I eat my kind of salad too quickly, I still get a little bit yeah, of, yeah, of bloating yeah. and stuff. If I do on the salad, that kind of really gets me. <laughs> like composting yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, next up would be sorry. The last thing I didn't mention was the polyphenols in plant foods. Actually, we still don't understand how this works, but polyphenols are kind of like antioxidants. So you also get them in things like teas, nuts, seeds, herbs and spices. They think that they trigger the hormones that govern things like satiation and stimulate the digestive system, which is why, you know, peppermint is known as a digestive aid. Right, I mean, right, it does okay. kind of have a relaxing effect as well on like the, the spasming of the gut. Um, but it's also believed that that kind of polyphenol content of your food. So I would also increase... Um, things like herbs and spices and, and in traditional cultures they use them you know if you think about it you in um, Indian restaurants you eat those kind of spice mixes do you remember have you ever had those with fennel and uh, I think it's fennel and some seeds after you've eaten as a digestive oh, aid really? yeah um, and, it, and it helps with it so any way that you can get those into your nutrition we always stick mixed herbs on a salad um, and we kind of make curries and soups and stews and add add things. And you might want to remove some of the kind of windier stuff that you trigger foods like garlic and onions just temporarily. Yeah. Um, use the powders maybe instead. See if that helps. Um, and I'd also just increase things like organ meats, bone broth, um, because they're just going to give you so much nutrition in terms of yeah. what the gut is made of and all those B vitamins. And again, you might want to have things like a spoonful of apple cider vinegar or um, lemon juice on all your foods to break down the protein a little bit more. And then if that's Chew. not resolving in kind of... Chewy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's Chew. a given, yeah. Chew. 
<laughs> Some people say count, but God, you know. Yeah, that's... That'd be, yeah that, can you imagine you know, chewing for this many times? <laughs> it does kind of just feel chew like, properly. Like, yeah, yeah, we, have, we have enough of to-do lists in our life yeah. without going, you've got to chew this like this many times. Um, but I suppose um, I'd say give it kind of two to three weeks and then go and get, ideally go and get practitioner support. Um, in our book, we did do a whole section on um, gut health and kind of foods that you really need to increase um, just to help help your digestive system a little bit more so you, know, you can always go for fit foods that can help in as well well actually sorry it, we've just been published now so we're paleo primer second helping yeah and there is a uk coming out in july and a us edition so please don't be mad if you get the wrong one if you just look um there are two editions um so we do we always do both but some people get a bit cross because they buy us thinking it's uk and vice versa so there are two editions so be sure to check that yeah it's a little bit confusing because not only is there two editions because we were self-published first then we got published and they changed the name yeah but the us uk title are the same but then also people that bought the self-published version think that when the published version come out it's a whole new book i know so they buy it so yeah huge apologies there guys very very confusing but uh Either way, you won't be disappointed. Um, Give it to a friend. Help him out. We should get cracking on book three. I was watching uh, David David Wallings on TV. Start now. He's done twelve books now. Oh yeah. And he was saying though he was he mentioned someone I can't remember who someone else he was following had written two hundred books. Doesn't he do children's books? Yeah, but still. No, I'm not trying to take anything away. I'm just. I'm just asking. How's your How's your third book coming along, Matt? Oh great, (laughs) fantastic. Anyway. I've got plenty of ideas. Yeah. I know that much. Lots of inspo. Awesome, Keris. Should we wrap it up then? Yeah. So do get in touch, guys. If you have something that you want us to cover on a future podcast or a question. Holla. Um, Holla. Just email info at fitterfood.com and, um, yeah, we can do an episode on it if we think it's um, quite a, a subject that is going like to affect a lot of people. people. Asking, yeah. um, or we're happy to kind of put some hints and tips in a blog or on I must admit, actually, page. someone did say, actually, uh, we... Um, they kind of said that they miss our Q&A-based uh, podcast, which we used to do a lot of, didn't we? We used oh, to come yeah, and do the questions, okay. so we'll probably get some more of those going on. So, Kerith, thank you. That was amazing. <laughs> no worries. Guys, thank you so much for listening. It would mean the world to us if you could leave a review over on iTunes. Um, that would be amazing. Um, or share this with anyone who has IBS. Of course, yeah. Share it with anyone who you think would be of benefit. And, of course, subscribe to the podcast if you love it, just so it's just there in your podcast app on your phone uh, each time that one is uploaded. But, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. As Keris mentioned, don't hesitate to get in touch any questions at all. And we will see you in episode number 86. Have a good one guys. Bye.